0: Good morning. What is your idea of the perfect gift? For me, the thing that comes to mind is a gift that my two best friends gave me three Christmases ago. During Advent of 2020, Leif and I were in the process of moving from Bakersfield to Glendora. And our house was packed up and we were gonna get here just in time to celebrate Christmas with my family and I was really excited because it was the first Christmas that Jonathan, my four-year-old, would be conscious of. He had been a two-month-old the year before, and I was really excited to get him involved in some of the Christmas traditions we had, like the cousin nativity play, and Christmas morning breakfast, and the stockings, and the presents, and the day before Christmas Eve, Leif and I got COVID, and Rather than driving down to Glendora and spending Christmas in my family's beautifully decorated home, we were really sick and quarantined in our undecorated, unfurnished house. And we were gonna miss all of it. No family, no lights, no decorations, no stocking, no tree, no food in our pantry or furniture in our home, actually. And as you would expect from a first-time mother who was sick and quarantined, and in the middle of a pandemic, I was unusually heartbroken. My friends in Bakersfield, Danielle and Melanie, knew that I was having a difficult time with all this, and they were determined to make our Christmas special. And on Christmas Eve, our doorbell rang, and we opened the door to find some Tupperware filled with their Christmas feast, a few presents, and a Christmas tree. It turns out they had gone to every tree lot in town and nobody had a tree. Then they went to every store they could think of who sold fake trees, but it was the first Christmas in the pandemic and supply chain issues were happening and nobody had a tree. But on the fifth store they went to, they found one tree and it was being used as a display to sell gift cards. And it had this sign on it. The perfect gift. <laughs> it wasn't the most beautiful tree. It was bent, a section of the lights didn't work, and the bow at the top had definitely seen better days. But to our family, it was the most beautiful tree we had ever seen. What is your idea of the perfect gift? we just come out of the season of Advent where we focus on Jesus being the light in our darkness and talking about how at Christmas, Jesus brings us God's hope and peace and joy and love, things we so desperately need in this world. Last Sunday, we had our Christmas Eve celebrations, our annual breakfast in Bethlehem and our candlelight services, and we celebrated Jesus coming at Christmas. And this Sunday, we linger there. We linger in Christmas, we linger in the hope peace, joy, and love that Jesus brings us at Christmas. We linger because this is still Christmas season in the church calendar. And if you've heard the song, the 12 days of Christmas, it talks about Christmas being a celebration that lasts not one day, but 12 days. And according to the church calendar, Christmas season begins on Christmas and continues for 11 more days, ending on January 5th. And at Christmas time, there's a lot of conversation about the perfect gift. Advertisements, commercials, catalogs all promise we can find that perfect gift through them. If you've heard the 12 Days of Christmas, that song is about all the gifts that a true love brings. And most of them are birds, which is a bold choice, I think. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm not a bird person. I don't know if that would be my perfect gift. What is your idea of the perfect gift? I was thinking about this question and thinking about the story of God and God's people we find in the Bible. The Bible is fascinating because it's a collection of 66 books and biographies and prophecies and letters and poetry, all written by various authors spanning thousands of years in three original languages and all inspired by the same God and they all fit together with remarkable cohesion, telling a story of a God who is irrevocably and unstoppably and unwaveringly in love with humanity. Over and over again, the Bible tells of God showing up, reaching out, saving and loving God's people amid sinfulness and selfishness and sickness and heartbreak and slavery. Over and over again, over thousands of years, from creation to the start of the church and looking ahead to the end of time, God loves us. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story that we read over and over again, the picture that these 66 books paint of our God, the God of the Bible. And this morning, as we're talking about our ideas of the perfect gift, I want us to think about one gift in particular God's love, specifically four characteristics of that love that we see in Scripture. The first characteristic I wanna talk about is that God's love is vast. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19 says, "'And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, "'may have power together with all the Lord's holy people "'to grasp how wide and long and high and deep "'is the love of Christ.'" To know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This verse comes from the book of Ephesians, which many of you know was originally a letter written by the apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. He wrote it around 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus while he was serving time in prison for spreading the message of Jesus to a world that did not want to hear it. So maybe you're thinking, we're talking about the perfect gift and we're talking about God's love and this seems fanciful or frilly or wishful thinking or child's daydream. But I think it sounds different when it comes from someone who has been imprisoned and writing this letter. When you see that Paul is writing about the vastness of God's love in the midst of hardship, in the midst of suffering, it makes the message more poignant, I think. The apostle Paul who knew the hardships of life and knew the reality of living in this unfair world, he chose to write to the church in Ephesus about God's love for them. A love that was so big that we could not fathom it with our finite minds a God's love that stretches beyond the breadth of our heartbreak and the length of our suffering and the height of our sorrows and the depths of our pain. Even in the midst of a season like that, God's love is greater and larger and bigger still. In fact, God's love is so wide and high and long and deep that it is beyond our human comprehension. In the 1990s, Stuart Townend wrote a modern hymn that he wanted to reflect this love of God He called it, how deep the Father's love for us. He wanted to write a song about Jesus on the cross, but from the perspective of God the Father. And what a gift it was that God gave us Jesus. The first verse of that hymn speaks about this immeasurable love of God for us. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. In the words of theologian N.T. Wright, the vastness of God's love invites us to marvel at the sheer magnitude of God's grace and to respond with gratitude, humility, and a deepened commitment to love others the way we have been loved. So the first characteristic of God's love I want us to think about this morning is that it is vast. And secondly, God's love is unconditional. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans is another letter written by the Apostle Paul a few years before the letter to the Ephesian church. And it's a letter this time written to the church in and around Rome. See, you're following. Yep, Romans, Rome. There you go. Romans has been called the crux of Christian thought and theology, the greatest of Paul's letters. And if you were in women's Bible study this last year, you went through Romans and you might be able to guess why. Romans is filled with amazing truths about the hope we have in Jesus and the love of God for us to reconcile us back to God. Michael Bird writes in his commentary on Romans, Christ dying for unworthy persons is a sure sign of extraordinary love. Christ does not die for the righteous, the good people. He dies to make the unrighteous righteous. This is the topsy-turvy, crazy, freaky, wildly illogical, world-denying, self-giving love that God shows sinners in Jesus Christ. I love that. How do we know that God's love for humanity is vast and big and unconditional, not only that God died for us, but that while we were still sinners, God died for us. God dies to make the unrighteous righteous. God's love is not dependent upon our goodness and our striving and our attaining. We are God's creation and God's children. And while God's love is about us and for us, it is not dependent upon us. God's love is unconditional. Fuller Seminary's Youth Institute, led by Kara Powell and Jake Mulder and Brad Griffin, has a lot to teach us about the faith of young people. Pointing to various studies by religious sociologists, they claim that what most young people have taken away from church is something called moralistic therapeutic deism. Pastor Tim has talked about this in other sermons. In other words, young people who have been in church have come away with the understanding that God exists, deism, and wants people to be happy, wants people to be nice, moralistic, and happy, therapeutic. And beyond that, God isn't much involved in human life or concerned that much about people. I was reading about this moralistic therapeutic deism in Meredith Miller's new book, Woven. It's, her subtitle is Raising Kids with a Faith They Don't Have to Heal From. Such a good title. <laughs> She claims that the church has unknowingly taught this kind of faith to kids by making every lesson of Bible stories for kids about the human characters in the stories and their behavior. Be faithful like Abraham, brave like Esther, obedient like Noah. But when I read her words, I thought, well, yeah, a lot of my sermons have fit that too. This kind of Bible teaching, she says, strives to make the Bible relevant to kids' lives, but actually makes God an observer, judging human behavior and seeming sad or happy or disappointed. And it gives us the wrong impression about God's love that it depends upon how we act. Meredith Miller writes, that the Bible is indeed relevant to our lives, but copying the human behavior in the story misses the point. We should be focusing on who God is and what God does in the story. God loves Abraham and has a plan for him. God is with Esther and God's people, even if we can't see him in the story. God's love makes a way for Noah and humanity when there is no way. The point is not that we become good people, the point is that we become God's people. And although there might be some overlap there, they are not the same thing. Moralistic, therapeutic deism teaches young people the wrong lesson because the lesson of the Bible is not be good and God will love you. God's love is unconditional. God's love simply is for us. And while we are called to live a certain way, to live as God's people, and we certainly are, the lesson of the Bible is not be good and God will love you. The lesson of the Bible is that God already loved us while we were sinners. Paul's words here in Romans five challenge the idea that we must strive to win God's approval because again, in the words of N.T. Wright, God has done everything we could need, everything we shall need and it had nothing to do with our goodness. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Apostle Paul's vision of God's love rises here like a sun on a clear summer's morning. We are dazzled by it. This is something that Paul has alluded to before, but it must have escaped us because it creeps up in this passage almost unaware. Paul explores this meaning of reconciliation that has taken place in chapters five through eight of Romans and the depths that God went to to bring this about for us. In a world that tells us we need to earn love, be worthy of love, the Bible teaches us that for God's children, God has already always loved us. This is God's topsy-turvy, crazy, freaky, wildly illogical, world-denying, self-giving love for you, for me, for us. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God's love is vast. God's love is unconditional, not dependent upon our goodness. Third, God's love is unwavering. Romans 8, 38 through 39 says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, in a world where love is often conditional and fleeting, God's love stands eternal and unchanging. This is the crescendo of this whole section of Romans, the culmination of three chapters of Paul's writing because just before this, Paul is asked the question, who can condemn us? He asks it time and again, and the the answer is resounding. Who is against us? No one. Who will bring a charge against us? No one. Who will condemn us? No one. Who can separate us from God's love? No one. For God's people, God has given Jesus and God has justified us and has already declared us to be in the right. Jesus has died and has been raised and is exalted and intercedes for us. And while there are many contenders in this world that will strive to pull us from that love, they will not succeed Look around, N.T. Wright says, and see the many things that threaten to separate you from the powerful love of God, which reaches out across the cross and resurrection and learn that they are all beaten foes. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not us, not others, not sickness, not death, nothing we have done or anything done to us. So you may have questioned God's love before. I often assume the Apostle Paul has too. But Romans chapters five through eight, this whole section is about assurance. That it may seem arrogant or self-centered to claim that we know beyond any shadow of doubt that we are loved by God but this is the truth of the letter of Romans. And it makes it clear to us over and over and over. Love is not an afterthought, but the underlying theme of this entire passage, that it comes back to it again and again. God's love rules victoriously over life and death. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God. God's love is vast. God's love is unconditional. God's love is unwavering. And lastly, Jesus is the embodiment of God's love. John three sixteen, a verse so many of us learn when we we're kids. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God came to us. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. This is why we read this verse, John three sixteen, when we lit the Christ candle last week. This is the story of Christmas, that God's love came in a manger on a winter's night. And one of my favorite Christmas books for kids is called Happy Birthday Jesus. Pretty self-explanatory. It's cheesy and short and simple. Great for my kids in their ages. But there's this great line at the end. It says, God sent Jesus from above. It was God's greatest gift of love. That is the message of Christmas. Jesus is God's gift of love to us. When we look at Jesus, the Messiah, we are looking at the one who embodies God's own love, God's love in action. This is what we said last week at our family service. This is what we said to the kids we celebrate today because Jesus is born, happy birthday, Jesus, and God loves us. Simple, but I think we adults need reminders of that as well. My four-year-old, Jonathan, this year watched a Charlie Brown Christmas about seven times, but he's a pretty sensitive kid, and the first time he watched it, he he started crying because he couldn't handle how sad Charlie Brown was at the beginning of the movie. And so I had to pause it and I explained to him, you know, Charlie Brown's sad because he doesn't understand what Christmas is about. He sees the presents and the parties and he doesn't think that's enough to make this the happiest time of the year. But he's gonna learn that Christmas is about Jesus and he's gonna get happy again. So he... That was enough for him. He continued watching and he watched it over and over. But every time it came on, he said, don't worry, mommy, Charlie Brown's sad now, but Jesus is coming. (laughs) The story of Christmas is that God's love came to us. Jesus came, the embodiment of God's love. Three Christmases ago, I was sick and quarantined in an empty house, wallowing in self-pity because I was caught up in the things about Christmas that didn't really matter. And I opened the door to find the food and the presents and the tree and the sign that said a perfect gift and it sure felt like that. But in reality, the perfect gift had nothing to do with the actual food and presents and tree The gift was the sacrificial act of love that my friends did that took up their Christmas Eve. (laughs) Today, as we linger in Christmas, may we be reminded that God's love is vast. That God's love is unconditional. God's love is unwavering. And that God showed up in the greatest act of love. God with us, Jesus. And that is the perfect gift. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are so grateful. We're grateful for Christmas and we're grateful we get to linger there and ponder this morning your love for us and all that you do for us and in the many gifts you give, but especially the perfect gift the gift of your love coming to us when we could not come to you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the manger. We praise you and we thank you. May we bring you glory, Jesus. In your name, amen.